Our text is again 1 Peter 2, verse 9, <coughs> uh, where we're thinking especially of the second part of the verse. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How do you recognize a real church? Uh, it's actually a, a very practical and important issue at a number of levels. Uh, for example, sometimes we face the question, uh, can we or should we cooperate closely and visibly with a church, uh, or at least a body that claims to be a church? Uh, when we do so, when we recognize another group as a, a, a church of God, uh, we may be compromising or confusing uh, people's beliefs because uh, this other group of people may have a very mixed up doctrine or may uh, be in serious error from a Bible point of view, and affirming them may lead others into error. So there's that issue. Uh, practically, when you go on holiday and you are looking for a church, you want to go to a biblical church. What are the marks of a church? And as we're going to think about uh, towards the end of the message, it's not just that there are dodgy groups out there, but there are also uh, Christians increasingly who say that you don't need to be a church in the traditional sense of church. Uh, they are, they say, a church uh, whenever they're together because Jesus has promised that wherever uh, people are, are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. So, when is a church not a church? How do you recognize the real deal from the fake? And at the time of the Reformation, uh, this was a very uh, real issue to consider what a church was, a true church, and how you recognized it. Because as Christians, we are all convinced, or at least we should be convinced, of the importance of unity, of church unity. Jesus, our Savior, prayed that we might be one. It's a very solemn matter to separate from uh, a genuine church. And uh, if you're going to leave a church, as the Reformers were doing, you need to be able to demonstrate that you are leaving something which is not recognizably a church. And the Roman church spoke of four aspects, and they were drawing from the, the words of the creed that marked it out as the only two church. It was uh, the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. One in that it had visible unity. Uh, holy, uh, it was through the church that grace was channeled. Um, it was uh, Catholic in that it was uh, represented in all kinds of, of backgrounds and, and countries. Uh, and it was apostolic because they claimed that the Pope stood in succession, in direct succession from Peter. And the Reformers uh, held on to those words, but they challenged the way that the Church of Rome was making inst an institution the basis of unity. The fact that there was a Pope that he had certain claims that the church had some false notions about what was happening in the sacraments. These were an institutional 
way of regarding the church. And they challenged that and they placed the emphasis on the word of God which brings the church into being. And therefore the apostolic mark, for example, was that the church preached only what the apostles had taught. They were preaching apostolic truth. So the church is not an institution. The church is not a movement. The church is not a political pressure group. But rather, as we see from the scripture, uh, it is a people who gather to worship. It is the gathered assembly, meeting before God, who declare uh, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So to the question, what is a church? Peter answers, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. To the answer, how do you recognize a church? Uh, it is, she does the things which flow from what she is, essentially. Her calling is to declare God's praises. The church is a worshipping community. So the church's great priority is worship. That is what we are about. That's our high calling. Now, sometimes, for the best of reasons, people don't get this right and they assert that evangelism or mission is the, the great calling of the church. I think it was Archbishop Temple, I might be wrong here, I think it was Archbishop Temple that said that the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of its non-members, in which way he was stressing the outreach function of the church. But that is not a biblical understanding of what church is. We exist to declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is our first purpose. Any group that doesn't uh, see worship as their primary calling is not church. Mission is vital, but it's not what makes the church. It flows from our priority of worship. And I think John Piper puts it well when he says that mission exists because worship does not. We evangelize out of a proper jealousy that God alone should be acknowledged as Lord. It is that desire that God should be worshipped and he is not that fires the mission outreach of the church. Worship is our calling and mission arises from the need for God to be honoured. Worship finds its focus in the adoration of God. It takes place when his people assemble. Remember, that's the root meaning of church, the assembly uh, of God's people. And as we do that, as we gather locally, we are joining uh, in a great crowd of witnesses that we cannot see, the festal assembly in heaven of saints and angels in declaring God's excellencies. We should never become small-minded or parochial when we come to Hope Church, Coatbridge, and worship with people uh, that we recognize and know well around us because the significance of our gathering transcends all of that. We are in a, a marvelously a wonderful supernatural gathering when we come to worship God in the local assembly of God's people. Adoration is a response to God's grace. We don't come to worship in order to get something out of the service. Sounds straightforward, but people will tell the lie to that if they say things like, well, you know, 
didn't get much out of church this morning, or things like that. That is putting things the wrong way around. We come primarily to offer up a sacrifice of praise to the living God. We're coming primarily to give to God. And yes, we uh, know a blessing in doing so, but the primary movement is for us coming to adore God in the sure and certain knowledge that he will be present with us. Now, if worship takes precedence over evangelism, it has to be also said that worship in itself is evangelistic. We declare before the nations the works and the name of the Lord. That's the Old Testament uh, emphasis on God's assembly. Uh, they are we are a light to the nations as we worship God. Our praises, in a sense, are heard by our neighbours. When a visitor comes into the assembly, Paul uh, anticipates that if worship is intelligible, it will have an impact on the outsider. It is evangelistic in the sense that he will fall down and declare, God is really among you. And so worship in itself, if it is, if it is intelligible, is, is evangelistic. So the true church is recognized as a community of worshippers, because that is our calling. Now the trouble is, it's never straightforward, the trouble is that uh, most churches everywhere are going to say that they're worshipping. Including, of course, the medieval church in the time of the Reformation. They claimed to worship. And so the reformers developed the idea of marks of the church distinctives that the true church always maintains. Uh, Calvin had two marks. He wrote, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there is not to be doubted a church of God exists. And the Scottish reformers added another mark to the church, which was discipline. So the three marks are the true preaching of the word, the uh, true administration of the sacraments and discipline, biblical discipline. These are all a consequence of what it is to be a community of worshippers. Where there is true worship, these marks will be recognisable. And so to the, the first mark, the true preaching of the word of God. The, the Reformers, when, when they spoke about true preaching being a mark of a true church, were moving the focus away from institution, from the machinery of church, to the fact that it is the Word of God that brings the church into being. Because it's the Word of God that brings about the new birth in lives. And if the church is a, a, a living temple made out of living stones, we come alive as we meet with Jesus in his word. And Peter has already laid emphasis on that. He said, he said earlier uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Sorry, it's verse 23. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. How do we uh, become incorporated into the church through the living word of God? Uh, that is the imperishable seed which has come to life within us through the word of God. And not only do we come alive as Christians through the word, but we grow as Christians through the word. Peter refers to the pure milk of the word. Uh, that is how we grow up in our salvation. So a key part of, the, of this idea of proclaiming the praises of God is that there is true preaching. A worshipping community will hear the word of God address them and they will respond to that preached word of God. And a church is only a, a, a true church when it is faithfully and truly preaching the word of God. Now, there are three consequences of this here. Uh, we need to have a, a demarcation line. We need to be able to, to recognize that what is proclaimed is actually truly apostolic, is true truth. And so uh, a church needs to have a creed or a confession uh, to mark the bounds of true preaching. Uh, what these things do, essentially, is to spell out the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, it's important to believe all that the Bible teaches, but some truths are more essential to the health of the church than others, and it's uh, important to understand that. For example, it is absolutely vital to believe in the divinity of Christ. It is absolutely vital to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. These things are fundamental doctrines. Uh, denial of them really puts a church uh, on the wrong side of the truth line. However, there are other things which uh, clearly are not fundamental doctrines, and Christians will disagree on, for example, the timeline before the return of Jesus. That's not really such a big deal if you are premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial or whatever millennial. Really, we can get along with people who have different views on the return of Christ, on the timeline. It's not a fundamental doctrine. But these other things are. And creeds and confessions help us to distinguish uh, the, um, the, the things which are deal-breakers in terms of recognizing a true church of Christ. So it's important that we have something which will hold us to account. It's also important, of course, that uh, having uh, such a thing that the church proclaims the truth in its confessions. No point in simply uh, having a confession of faith on the shelf and permitting preachers in a church just to say whatever they want without ever holding them to account. And of course that's the shame currently of the Church of Scotland, which has the same standard as we have, the Westminster Confession, but really never hold preachers to account if they go beyond what the confession of their church declares. So uh, it's important to preach the truth. And interestingly, the third thing is it's important to hear the truth well. So proclaiming the truth in itself doesn't a church make. 
for example, extreme, an extreme example would be uh, if you are preaching the, the truth in Coatbridge pedestrian precinct uh, and there are people around you, or at least walking by you, that doesn't necessarily make a church. Because if they're not hearing and responding, they're not a church. The mark of the church is a gathered community uh, who are submissive to the Word of God, whose lives are being transformed through the Word of God. Calvin speaks of the true preaching and hearing of the Word of God. That's the first and vital mark. And it's why preaching is so important, why it is a, a focal point of what we do as a gathered assembly. Uh, God speaks to us through the Word, and we respond in praise and adoration. Secondly, the second mark is... Oh, I've missed a slide. Okay. The, the second mark is uh, the sacraments. The sacraments uh, are to be administered in accordance with Christ's institution. I guess we probably wonder why that would be made a mark of the church, why sacraments would be seen as very significant. And the very fact that we do wonder is a recognition that we probably downplay, undervalue the sacraments in our own day. Sacraments are visible and dramatized forms of the preached word. So when we see that, we ought to realize that if they are corrupted in some way, or if they are undervalued, or if they are viewed in a superstitious way, so that they are given uh, more than the scripture says of them, then that will corrupt the church. It will move the church away from its biblical anchor. And so, on the one side of the spectrum, you had in the Roman church a superstitious elevation of the sacraments. So, when they had the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, uh, they were claiming that the bread and the wine actually became the body and the blood of Christ. And they spoke of the adoration of the host. Now, that wasn't adoring the priest, who that's probably what we might think, he was the host at the service, but it was a Latin word for the sacrifice. So it's just getting worse and worse, really. They, there is an adoration of the, the, the bread and wine, and also it's being perceived as a sacrifice which the priest is offering up. And, of course, the Bible speaks of the, the one and only, the ultimate, the final sacrifice that Christ has made. So we immediately see how corrupting and the thinking of the, 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 the people of God such a corruption of the sacrament is, and how it moves people away from the whole notion of salvation being by faith in Christ alone. Similarly, with baptism, baptism was seen as infusing grace. Something actually was transferred to the individual by the water of baptism. And it dealt with the problem of original sin. Now, of course, again, that is elevating uh, baptism beyond what the Bible says about it. So that's the one extreme. And on the other extreme, you have an undervaluing of the sacraments. And that's probably more the case in our day. You have a, a very casual view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
Don Carson, the theologian, uh, tells an anecdote of uh, a woman who was witnessing to a friend on a Californian beach. And the woman responded to uh, the witnessing, and she was immediately walked down <laughs> to the, the sea by her friend who baptized her there and then. And Carson comments, well, at one level, that was commendable enthusiasm. But it was done without any awareness of how the covenant of baptism fits in uh, with the, the church and how it anchors someone in the in the, the life and worship of the, the, the local worshipping community. Now, that Californian lady may well have had Philip and the Ethiopian in mind. And who knows, really? That may have been uh, her template. But, but if so, it was really reading a lot into something which was a very unique situation. The Ethiopian was going to a place where there was no church. Uh, and rather, the, the, the lead should really have been Philip's enthusiasm to receive Peter and John in Samaria when they came uh, to, to tie in the converts that had come, up, come through his preaching there with the mother church in Jerusalem. Baptism is a, is a, is a rite of the church, it's a covenant sign. Uh, it's to be given in the context of a worshipping community. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are functions of the church given by Jesus and they speak and reveal the gospel in different ways. And, and therefore they're, they're important. And when they're corrupted, the church itself is corrupted. So there's the mark of the true preaching and hearing of the word of God. The right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the third way, and this is the emphasis that the Scottish reformers uh, placed, was that you recognize a true church when there is biblical discipline in the church. The church has a solemn responsibility of defining its membership according to the scripture. When Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's not speaking to Peter about uh, a, a papal succession. That's completely absent from uh, the discussion. It means that Peter, here standing for himself and the other apostles who will write scripture, will through their written witness in the scriptures include or exclude men and women according to the response to the word. And the idea of binding and loosing or including and expelling from the church is to be done by the leaders of the church so that the church won't lose its identity over time, so it won't become diluted by people who are only nominal, who don't have a living faith. And therefore, there's, there's a a policy, or there's a protocol in a true church which involves this binding and loosing. So that you move up from informal uh, processes to uh, bringing in the, ch the church leaders. Jesus says, but if they will not listen, that is, uh, the, the person who's been challenged because they've sinned, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that 
Every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this, the third mark, again, it's, it's, it's uh, connected with the Word, it's connected with the Bible. Where there is no discipline, the Word is not ruling in the midst. Christ rules his church through his Word. And if there's no discipline, then there is a rejection of the rule of Christ. And there is no church. So, where there is no true biblical preaching, no proper administration of the sacraments, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, where there is no discipline, there is no church. No church does these things perfectly. But where, even after the exercise of great charity, um, we have to conclude that they're not properly present, then we also have to conclude then there is no church present here either. What about the example that I mentioned earlier? What about those who maintain that you don't need to belong to a local church? Now here we're going to tease out the idea of what we mean by local church, because we bandy around the idea of local church uh, a lot, and it's more than simply geographical location. Uh, There's a steady stream of books that reflect thinking uh, within the uh, minds of of those who call themselves Christians that you can be a Christian without doing church, or that you can do church very differently from the way it's always been done. Uh, So there's these titles, Pagan Christianity, Quitting Church, Life After Church, They Like Jesus But Not the Church, and so on. Many Christians have come to think of the church simply as being where there are several Christians together. So hanging out at a cafe, talking about Jesus, is just as valid an expression of doing church as traditional models. In fact, it may be more valid because it's more culturally relevant. And they would argue, didn't Jesus say, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst The trouble is you can't boil down the the biblical description of what church is to one verse used out of context. And you add further to confusion when people who claim to have gone beyond the traditional ideas of coming to a place that is gathered with other Christians regularly tend to talk about the universal church. So they're thinking about uh, church as it describes the gathering of people throughout the nations and through heaven, rather than the local expression of church. I've spoken to people who uh, speak of being in the church because they meet at different times with people in their various networks around the world, but you wouldn't find them at the local church on any Sunday. Now, when we say local church, we're not necessarily speaking about the church that is nearest to you, but we're speaking about 
the real visible church in the community as opposed to a vague and loose connection with an undefined number of other Christians. And the local church is important. The local church in that sense is vital for every Christian because it's only the local church that can display these marks of the church that we've been speaking of. Uh, the local church goes beyond the idea of people simply having a discussion to implying that someone is set apart as a teaching elder. It's a local church where baptism and communion are celebrated. It's only in connection with a local church where there is accountability. It's only when you are committed visibly to a local body of believers that you find God's template for spiritual growth. Being in the local church very different from being in a, a para-church organization. Para-church, we mean some of these organizations that uh, are, are Christian, but they, they, they wouldn't, they're not denominations, and they, they don't function like a local church, like Gideon's or the Christian Union, or something like that. Basically, people in groups like these are all from the same background. That's nice at one level. But the beauty of the local church is it throws us together with people from very different backgrounds. And we learn to be patient in the church of Christ locally. We tend to have to appreciate the gifts that people bring that are very different from our own gifts, where we have to understand different points of view and where we're able to celebrate that diversity that we have the one thing in common which is more important than anything else, certainly than having a similar background. And that one thing is Christ. Four Christian footballers meeting in Starbucks uh, to talk about the Bible may have a good Bible study, but they're never the church. The local church, the visible local church, is much greater than that. And they're not going to grow as Christians until the point when they see that they need to throw their lot in with the local, visible gathering of the people of God. Now, the history, of course, of the church, all its splits and disagreements over church order and so on, should always stand as a warning, shouldn't it, to us, that it's very easy to be diverted away from what should be the focus of our attention, which is always Jesus himself. That's not to diminish the church, because as we say, the, if you love Jesus, you will love his church, because Jesus loves the church. But, you know, it doesn't really in the end matter how much you know about the church, or how little you know about the church. If you don't love Jesus, then it doesn't really benefit you anything. And therefore that is the, the question that the, the scripture addresses us with in conclusion do you love Jesus? Do you know the one whose delight it is for the church to declare the praises of? Can you say that God has brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light? 
you see that once you are living in darkness, not only in terms of not understanding, but also in the pattern of your living. And now you have been brought into a light that shows you clearly how things are. You know the thrill of meeting Jesus. And in the beautiful words that Peter uses, is Jesus precious to you? Because the contrast is between those who uh, reject this stone because he's become a stumbling stone and those for whom he is precious. You come to him, verse 4, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. Verse 7, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. Jesus, the precious one, precious to the Father, precious to every Christian. It's only as we thrill to Jesus that we thrill to being with the people of Jesus. And that's the fundamental question that we finish with. Do you love Jesus? Is he precious to you because he's brought you from darkness to light? And if not, then may he be so by grace, trusting in him alone. Amen. May God bless to us the preaching of his word.